Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Wednesday, March 15th, and I'm Kristen Beard Adams, President of the City Club Board of Directors. It's my pleasure to introduce today's forum, the first in a seven-part series that, the Cleveland, that Cleveland's Westside Market will host across the city. On behalf of the City Club staff and board, we are honored to kick off this series and highlight the critical role our cherished Westside Market um, plays in the economic and cultural landscape and history of our community. For more than a century, the Westside Market has been a pillar of the Cleveland community, of the greater Cleveland community, I should say, with dozens of independent businesses selling fresh produce, meats, seafood, baked goods, dairy products, and more. Cleveland's public market tradition dates back to 1840, when land at the intersection of West 25th and Lorraine was deeded to Ohio City with the stipulation that it remained a public market. Our moderator today, Cleveland Mayor Justin M. Bibb, has made revitalizing the West Side Market a key initiative of his administration, and he has wasted no time. Uh, to date, um, he has he and his team have um, trans are under in the process of transitioning the management and op of operations of the market to the recently formed Cleveland Public Market Corporation. We founded they founded its inaugural board, and an executive director search is underway. And also, the release of the first phase of the market's master plan has been released. Today, Mayor Bibb will lead a conversation with panelists from leading public markets from across the country, including Dan Carmody, Chief Executive Officer of Detroit's Eastern Market Corporation, mm -hmm. Kelly Lancer, Director of Communications and Strategic Initiatives at Cincinnati's Finley Market, and Robert Thomas, former Executive Director of Baltimore Public Markets. If you have questions for our speakers, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and the City Club staff will do their best to work them into the second half of the program. Uh, you also can tweet your questions at the City Club. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join us in welcoming our panelists and Cleveland Mayor, Justin Bibb. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kirsten. And thank you, PNC, for hosting this very critical conversation uh, in our community. I want to just dive right in. Uh, today's theme is really talking about the importance of public markets as community anchors. And starting with you, Rob, from Baltimore, what's your perspective in terms of the role that your market has played as an anchor institution in the city of Baltimore? Thank you, Mayor um, The role of the markets, and we have six in Baltimore, uh, has been as a supermarket alternative. Since most of the markets date supermarkets, uh, they, they organically sprung up in communities um, as community space, as, a, as, as the place to go for your groceries. And this was in a time when a lot of people still cooked. 
I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, they were also job creators and entrepreneurial development places. I mean, if you really wanted to make money, you either had a job that was really labor intensive or you start a business that was really labor intensive. It didn't matter either way. So these are the kind of things that uh, contributed to the reinvestment in community, the stabilization of community, and the build-up of community. And that's how the, these markets came about and um, to some extent continue now. Well, to our neighbors in the South, Cincinnati, yes. I remember when I was campaigning for mayor a long time ago in 2021, <laughs> um, all across the community, they would say, how does Cleveland's West Side market become like Findlay Market in Cincinnati? Mm -hmm. And that market has seen a lot of great progress over the last decade or so. How has that been seen as an anchor institution for the great city of Cincinnati? Great. Um, thanks for the question. So Findlay Market, to your point, over the last decade has grown significantly. Um, we are also a, a nonprofit uh, managing Finley Market, um, been around for about 20 years now. So um, we are 20 years into, I think, what uh, Cleveland is, is starting right now. Um, so a couple of uh, ways that we, I think, have been an anchor in the actual community. So Finley Market's been around for 171 years, um, and at our core, we've always been a grocery store for the neighborhood. So we are dedicated to having fresh food, um, being two-thirds grocery items versus um, adding in too much prepared food. Um, we have some artisans, but not a ton. Um, so at our core, we are fresh food for Cincinnatians. Um, over the last decade, we have worked closely with developers in the city of Cincinnati to uh, redevelop the, the neighborhood for more spaces for food entrepreneurs to go in. So if you came 10 years ago, you were able to go inside of the market house and visit a couple of storefronts. Now we've got a full market district that didn't exist before. And then in addition to that, we have, as an organization, spent significant time um, and energy on being a place for food entrepreneurs to start, grow, or scale um, through a couple of different programs that we'll probably talk about later. That's great. That's great. Detroit always feels like our sister city to the north <laughs> um, in the somewhat okay state of Michigan. OH. We have to. There we go. We I had to, to do that, Dan. I'm sorry. Dan, we have to share Dan Gilbert. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. We do. We do. Talk about the Eastern Market in Detroit and what's that been for you in, in your great city? Slightly different context in the sense that Eastern Market is a public market, and unlike our other two great public markets represented here, we don't have permanent vendors. We serve transient vendors. So people mm -hmm. come, they set up, they sell, they tear down, they leave. 500 over our various markets. Um, and we're also a district, and we're, we like to call ourselves now the last great urban food district left in the United States. Every mm -hmm. city had a place like this, Meatpacking District in New York, Fulton Market in Chicago, mm -hmm. I presume Finley in its day, mm -hmm. surrounded by food businesses, yep. which when urban real estate trends came through and invested, there's that G word we could throw out there like loose change, like a lot of people do, <laughs> uh, and, and those food businesses couldn't compete and they left. And so in 2015, we saw investment coming at us and for the last six years have been working on a whole different strategy. From an economic development perspective, we spent until 2015, two hands on the chest, trying to get a better pulse on the heart of Eastern Market. For the last five years, we've been saying, slow down, wait, don't overrun us with commercial real estate investment mm -hmm. because the market serves three roles that are really critical to that connection you talk about. 
Number one, like public markets everywhere, we're the place where people go without a lot of means that want to get a start in life, whether it's a business or a job. And so renting that $50 stall space for a transient vendor is the countless stories of entrepreneurs, particularly new, new immigrants and refugees coming to this country, getting off the boat, getting off the plane, getting off the train, and starting on their career in business. So that's critical to our past success, and it's something that we want to bake in to make sure that doesn't go away. Secondly, at a seasonally, you know, we, we, we peak in the summer months on a Saturday in a nice sunny day in, in Michigan, uh, we'll attract 30 to 40,000 people, and it's everybody. Wow. All walks of life across the lines that tend to separate us, and that's something that doesn't happen enough these days. And then lastly, we're the center of a regional food economy. Mm -hmm. So we're the place where Michigan farmers, Ohio farmers, a handful, Ontario farmers, they come to sell to a wholesale market. They come to sell to uh, retail direct on our Saturday market. Uh, but we also have uh, 150 brick-and-mortar businesses, 120 of which are food distributors or makers, that, uh, for instance, if you're buying corned beef at a Walmart or Sam's Club today, there's a company, um, Eastern Market, that put a second shift on the 1st of September that just got dismissed, that put into cold storage 350 semi-loads of corned beef that got distributed between the 15th of February and the 1st of March for Sam's uh, National St. Patrick's Day corned beef rush. Uh, if you bought a fresh burger at a Five Guys burger, there's a company that makes 16 million fresh burger patties a week. Mm. Detroit, like Cleveland, has the opportunity to actually serve as a national distribution center for niche products. You know, we don't have the space to accommodate a couple hundred thousand square feet in the heart of the city, but we want to attract employment because I'll end with this. The food sector has the highest percentage of entry-level living wage jobs that pay that don't require a high school diploma. Mm -hmm. So if you want to, if you got a problem, you want to ramp up work, labor force participation rate, mm -hmm. having a strong food sector is really important. You know, Dan, I, I want to stick with you for, for this additional point. You, you talked about the role that the Eastern market has played to really drive the, the larger food economy and food ecosystem, not just in Detroit, but nationwide. What are some lessons learned for us in Cleveland as we explore the next phase of the West Side market? So we've used the market, uh, in addition to operating the public market, our nonprofit uh, that was established in 2005 after 10 years of internecine warfare. So I know there's been a similar history mm -hmm. um, in, in, in Cleveland. Um, we took the basic um, operation of the market. We've done two things. One is we built a whole suite of programs and built a whole myriad of partnerships to address the last mile issues, food access, mm -hmm. which we define as a three-legged stool. You've got to be able to get food to people who can't get to your market. You, uh, that live in neighborhoods that are ill-served by grocery stores. You gotta address. You gotta affect the affordability. So doubling up benefits, uh, SNAP, easy use of SNAP benefits. Um, we actually have a fairly well-developed now prescription benefit, so doctors can prescribe fruits and vegetables for wow. diabetics and pre-diabetics, and, and actually uh, drive commerce to farmers. Um, and then we also have tried to build an ecosystem to support entrepreneurs from the farm all the way through, we don't spend too much time on uh, distributors, but farmers and makers um, and composters were there to help figure out how they can develop their business model. So we incubate, we got kitchens that you can rent uh, by the hour. Uh, we have two different forms of acceleration. You can, we have a co-packing facility where people can contract to have their expanded production made and then we've gotten into the business lately 
uh, to fight the investment wave to make sure that we still have real estate that's priced at below market prices that emerging food businesses can support. We have long-term leased and controlled properties in the market district where we're going in and building out. We have five now. We have uh, support, financial support to build two more where we create accelerator spaces where our, our best emerging companies that maybe have two or three employees can figure out how to get from three or $400,000 a year in sales to a million plus. I, uh, Kelly, I, I want you to drill down on something Dan just talked about, mm -hmm. the role of public markets really driving job growth, mm -hmm. driving new positive revenue generating opportunities in their respective cities. Mm -hmm. Talk about kind of the Finley story in terms of the role that that market has played in driving uh, local entrepreneurship. Absolutely. Um, so uh, we have several full-time businesses um, open six days a week, and um, there have been a good amount of those businesses who have started out the market. It's a safe place um, because you are running out a stand, you're not uh, taking out a second mortgage on a house, um, you are getting in front of 1.5 million people a year. So it's a great opportunity to start full-time. But um, over the last 10 years, what we've realized is that there are so many people with barriers to entry as a food entrepreneur, specifically those that are BIPOC women or immigrant. Um, and we have placed special emphasis on those groups of people um, in a few programs. So um, we similarly have a, a kitchen, shared use kitchen incubator that we built about eight years ago. Um, again, special emphasis on those groups of uh, people um, by allowing um, very, very inexpensive rent into those kitchens by the hour, um, scholarship programs, but more importantly, wraparound services and access to additional sales channels. So um, when we opened the kitchen, we knew there would be a little bit of working hand in hand with those entrepreneurs, but we thought it might be how do you scale your cupcake recipe to uh, making 500 instead of 50. Um, it became so much more than that. It was. Um, how to market yourself, what happens when you want to do a pop-up and someone gets sick. Um, all of these wraparound business support services became critical to supporting those food entrepreneurs. Um, and through the kitchen, over the last year we've had, or last eight years, we've had about 220 businesses use the kitchen. 85% um, of those businesses have been BIPOC women or immigrant owned. Um, and so we, we had that great program and then out of that, we realized, okay, these people are ready to go to the next step. How do, we, how do we help them? And there were just too many stories of people who were, again, taking out a second mortgage, doing these crowd fundraisers and asking friends and family for money to go into a storefront. And sometimes a storefront or full-time brick and mortar is just not for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, you are focused on payroll and you're focused on hiring and firing and you're not getting to the cooking and, and the, the recipes that you fell in love with. Um, so we created what's called Finley Launch, and it's a, it's a residency-based program. We get people in a space for a year. They have to go through a whole curriculum, um, and then at the end they can decide this is for me or this, this was awful. Um, and we've had people graduate both ways. We've had some people who they found success, they loved it, um, we found a home for them somewhere else permanently, and then we've had some people say, absolutely not, I wanna get back to the kitchen, I wanna do special events, those sorts of things. Um, and then most recently, out of that, we also realized there's another barrier, and that's just general education to yeah. business development. Um, so Finley Learn was launched last year to teach, again, kind of those basics, so that those that are interested in food business understand the business side, yeah. because 
they, they know the food. It's the business side that I, I think was lacking. That's a great roadmap for us to follow up here in Cleveland for the West Side Market. You know, Robert, Kelly talked about this notion of a public market being the neighborhood grocery store. And um, this is something that's top of mind for me as mayor. As many of you know, uh, the SNAP benefit is going to change yep. uh, post-pandemic for many of our residents in the city of Cleveland. We have amazing organizations like the Cleveland Food Bank that are doing great work mm -hmm. in our city. But food insecurity is a major issue. Yep. Food justice is a major issue. Yep. Robert, talk about kind of your vision for uh, your market and what it means to really address food insecurity and food justice issues in a given community. Starts with uh, understanding a couple of things, uh, availability, pricing, mm. um, amenities, collaborations, um, and then something that you had mentioned, just the educational piece. All of those, um, all of those work together or must work together in dealing with the food insecurity piece, just because we find that these are the things that come up over and over again. Mm. These are our, our recurring themes. And so the fact that we actually have six markets in six different neighborhoods is, is its own best kept secret, even in Baltimore. So, you know, <laughs> but, but, the, but that addresses to some extent the availability piece, because they're in every one of these neighborhoods, um, one even more recently, uh, it is either a, what they call a high priority food area, we used to call them food desert. So I'll go with food desert. It's either a food desert or on, the, or on the fringe of a food desert. Mm. And, and availability is an issue. So with retail, obviously location, location, location is still a thing. Mm -hmm. And it's still a thing because if people have to schlep their groceries for a half a mile in a little cart that they pull behind them, that just doesn't work. And our, and our, our metro system is not as developed as yours. Mm. Yay. So, you know, we, we have one line um, that's not serving a lot of people yeah. that need to get to and from a grocery. So the public markets have this opportunity to fill that niche. I mean, it's a golden opportunity. So we, we, we really need to do that. Pricing is also an issue because people, we have the giant food, we have safe, we have uh, super fresh and all of that. Not anymore. Super fresh is gone. So um, we need to make sure that people can afford something yeah. to eat, um, especially the basics. And the interesting thing is a lot of the people, I mentioned this earlier, but a lot of the people that shop at our public markets, especially in the lower income brackets, do still cook mm. something. They cook something. Um, and so it's important for them to be able to get basics, be able to get ingredients, um, just so that along with the food distribution programs that we've had in the city, sponsored by the city, sponsored by the, the planning department, um, aided by national dollars, by federal dollars, it's still important on a day-to-day -day basis to, to, to provide something that people can afford. Um, the amenities gets to what Dan was saying about the, the last mile piece or the delivery piece, because we have our own sets of um, residences, high-rise high -rise residences for um, the elderly or for those that are infirm, we need to get the food to them. Yeah. During the pandemic, we, some of our merchants learned that. Not all of them caught on, but it was an opportunity to, to serve people and still make money. Along with that went the online piece. And since online SNAP is, still, is, is now more of a thing, 
that addresses some of the, the some of the food insecurity piece because people can actually combine with the last mile piece get the food that they need without having to go a mile two miles catch a cab catch a hack that's what we call them in Baltimore <laughs> um, and, and deal with that and then the other thing is that the CSAs at the market yeah. were something that we featured so that people could get their um, at least their produce in, um, in in some kind of regular periodic way so the food insecurity piece is a, is a steep uphill climb. Yeah. Um, but these four factors, availability, pricing, amenities, and collaborations with other institutions in the city and academia, um, and even private partnerships and transporters, is all a part of meeting that. That's critical. Dan? I just want to the food sovereignty piece I find interesting, and that is... Um, what do you I, mean by that? In Detroit, there's a very vibrant, and I think that's true in Cleveland as well, urban agriculture movement. Yeah. Where people want to grow their own, mm. and uh, we have had very active nonprofits. We we haven't had to get directly involved in the incubation part, mm-hmm. um, but we have f- facilitated and served those organizations and been lockstep with them and what they're trying to do. For example, we sold them uh, the main nonprofit is called Keep Growing Detroit that produces uh, transplants for up to two thousand urban farms in Detroit. They were kicked out of a casino site that this casino wanted back for its own development. There was no. We, we found them land, so they, no interruption of service. We actually sold them the site, so they don't have to worry about losing that. That's where 2,000 urban growers go in the heart of the market district. They're unheated hoop sheds. They get their transplants. They, they plant them. Everybody's going along doing great. One of the things that Detroit is a lot of vacant land, but it's all former small residential lots. So if you want to become a farmer, the locals have done a pretty good job of getting from zero to two acres. Our question that we're trying to answer now as we do our long-term planning is an existential threat to our market is where did tomorrow's medium-sized farmers come from? That's interesting. Who's the 10 to 50 acre farmer that's the bread and butter of our Saturday market? How do you keep that in the urban core? And how do we, as we, they're all retiring without air. And so we got 2,000 people that want to farm. It's just like food entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. 1,950 of them are happy just doing it on two, two lots next to their house. But how do we find those, that 1%, that 5% that can actually, I want to make a go of this. Mm-hmm. We need it from a regional standpoint. And as someone who's been trying to work with the city to assemble 25 acres for food industrial development, I can tell you how hard it is. You can look at all that vacant land and go, oh, it must be wonderful to have all that opportunity. Putting those sites together will Very hard. Make, <laughs> make you bald. <laughs> um, so if you're thinking about getting to a 10-acre site in the city and you're thinking about making a farm out of it, you're yeah. doing more than crack. Uh, so we work locally, but we work regionally. And so yeah. for us, the answer is we have these things called farms in the region. Mm-hmm. And where's the closest, right now in the process of, where's the closest one to the city of Detroit that we can control? We don't even have to buy it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And put a curriculum together mm-hmm to put 10 or 12 two-acre growers on the same plot of land to learn how to grow it, be 10 or 12-acre farmers. So That's it's, it's, it's a, I think it's the approach of public markets in the sense of just whatever the ecosystem is. Mm-hmm. The single greatest thing we do for entrepreneurs is provide that sales space where yeah. you can, at an affordable price, yeah. earn a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in sales or whatever it is, but more importantly, get immediate feedback. This is a good product. Yep. Mm-hmm. This is terrible. Yeah. Anyway, Makes sense. I went on to Before we get to audience questions, I want to each ask you this question around the role of a public market in driving 
urban revitalization in a neighborhood. Uh, we've seen how the West Side Market has been an amazing anchor of revitalization on West 25th. Um, and uh, that part of the city has unlimited potential. Kind of talk about what you're doing now in your respective cities in terms of leveraging those assets to drive long-term economic and community development. Start with Kelly. Sure. Um, so we're pretty lucky at Finley Market in that we have great relationships with all of the local developers. Um, we have bi-weekly meetings with kind of the top seven to ten um, that are active north of Liberty, which is where the market district is. Um, so for those who have not been to Finley Market, Finley Market is kind of on its on on an island. Um, if you came north of Liberty, which is a major street in Cincinnati, um, you are only going to Finley Market or in the last five years going to a brewery. Other than that, you weren't, you weren't going to that neighborhood specifically. Um, so in partnership with local developers, we've been able to get locally owned independent businesses into those storefronts on the first floor. More recently, we're seeing uh, renewed interest in living in the neighborhood. So um, the neighborhood that we're in uh, about 50, 60 years ago had 40,000 people living in it. Um, I think three years ago, it was about 6,000. Um, wow. So it um, is a lot different than the neighborhood used to be. Yeah. It used to be very dense, as mm -hmm. densely populated as Manhattan is today um, and so working with um, people to have different living options um, for people to move back to the neighborhood because residents are critical to um, Finley Market being successful. Danny you're in, right in the middle of a deal right now right? Is that um, sure yeah. uh, so our role as traffic cops is to make sure that uh, we achieve a Goldilocks situation of c capitalism has a hard time and it's, in Detroit it's been either nothing or too much. <laughs> so how do you get some, enough? Yeah. Uh, how do you maintain the core values of being in a place that's about everybody coming together, about small business development by people who don't have means, about, mm -hmm. about food? Because city after city saw that investment wave come and go. So what we do, work proactively on maintaining affordability in both commercial and in residential development. So we created a nonprofit community development corporation that is partnering to build workforce housing for people with incomes between 30 and 60% AMI and letting the market, the, pub, the, the, the market rate developers take care of all the market rate housing because it's a very sexy neighborhood. So for us, it's all about figuring out strategically how we can defend the affordability to have commercial space so we don't lose our, our legacy businesses, that we can increase the storefronts owned by BIPOC business owners, that we can do whatever it is to make sure that this place remains a place where people with limited means go to build their dream. That's great. Robert, Charm City, what we got? Charm City is, um, is charmed because it's still in existence. It would have been gone away a long time ago. But I can tell you that there are some things happening now, both in the core of downtown um, and in the west side of downtown, which is where Lexington Market is, the largest of our six markets. The interesting thing that's happening at the core of downtown, just announced yesterday, is that there's 1.6, um, with a lot of zeros after it, Develop, in development that is intended, planned, or in progress um, within a mile of, of the core of downtown. That includes areas um, around the Lexington market, some of its residential, some of its, um, some of its uh, business, and all of it abuts 
um, one campus or another, either University of Maryland on the west side, or it starts to creep over to the east side where Johns Hopkins has fingers. One day, those two hospitals will just come together at Charles Street and it'll be, they'll own the city. Um, but what also is happening in the west side is that with the um, impetus of the new construction of Lexington Market, now there is storefront, um, storefront activity, a lot more development that's being planned and uh, there's a lot more interest in the, and as, as well as residential. There's a lot more interest in that area now because that area, once the department stores left, was just this valley of the shadow of death. We're coming back from that now. That's great. Yeah. Well, before we go to audience questions, I want to just acknowledge the amazing vendors that are here today joining us for this conversation. Please stand. Don Whitaker from DW Whitaker Meats. Jimmy Trainer of the West Side Market Cafe. Ruby Thomas of Ohio City Pista, Pasta. I love your pasta, by the way. It's great. And then Tom McIntyre from Kate's Fish. And Amanda Chicory from Chicory Meats. Let's give a round of applause for your team. We're about, to, we're about to begin the audience Q&A. I'm Kristen Beard Adams, president of the City Club Board of Directors. Today we are hosting a conversation regarding the role of public market markets as community anchors with panelists including Dan Carmody, CEO of Detroit's Eastern Market Corporation, Kelly Lancer, Director of Communications and Strategic Initiatives at Cincinnati's Finley Market, and Robert Thomas, former, former Executive Director of Baltimore Public Markets. Moderating the conversation, of course, is Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, and those joining us via our live stream at cityclub.org. If you'd like to tweet a question, tweet it at the City Club. You can also text your questions to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and the City Club staff will do their best to work it into the program. May we have our first question, please? Uh, yes. Uh, before the program started, I asked Mr. Carmody about the role that uh, immigrants and refugees play in the public markets. I was wondering if uh, the other two panelists could please comment on how this figures into their markets. Uh, you go. Sure. Um, so um, specifically when we opened up Finley Kitchen, um, that's when we really started seeing the impact of the immigrant communities um, as we were introduced to um, many entrepreneurs that were um, bringing foods to generally Cincinnati that, that wasn't available before. So um, one great example is the Rapa Place. Um, Isis uh, Arietta Dennis is from Columbia, and she came um, with just this general idea to introduce arepas and empanadas in a new way to our region. Um, went through Finley Kitchen, we um, incubated her into being a, a very popular pop-up space in um, Cincinnati, and she's now celebrating five years as a, a full-time storefront at the market, and, yeah, and now um, opening up her second permanent location. Um, so for her, she's seen success, but what we're seeing at Finley Market is a whole new um, group of shoppers. So. Mm -hmm. We did not have very many Hispanic shoppers um, prior to ESIS um, introducing them to Finley Market. Um, and there is a, a large population very close by, um, three miles away um, specifically there. And um, they just, they had not been coming to Finley Market because hmm. the products weren't available. And so that's just one example of the importance of uh, the immigrant community uh, at the market. 
The story in Baltimore is, is interesting because each of the markets, especially Lexington, has always had a, an immigrant wave. Mm -hmm. So there was a Western European wave that was still in place but diminishing by the time I got there about 20, 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and they held place until they got old or tired or just had wanted to call it a day. Most of them, interestingly enough, sold to the next wave, which, go figure, was Korean. Hmm. And so they came in, um, operated many of the same businesses in the same way. So they didn't change the food. Um, and in fact, we had a hard, I ran on, went on many rants about the fact that I was having a hard time just getting authentic Korean food, but they ignored me. So, you know, <laughs> that's... That was there, but it was also about job development and, and entrepreneurial development. Um, and then this next wave is, is less of an immigrant wave, but it is uh, really more of a selective process for this new, newly constructed building. Um, and pulling from many different communities in Baltimore, we're beginning to see what Finley's is already experiencing. So people are bringing their food with them this time. And that's what we wanted to see all along. So it's um, it's working. It's going to take some time, but it is building. Hi, I'm Daniel from Stella Maris, and um, I think is one of the largest recipients of uh, food waste through Rust Belt Riders through the market that's down the street. Um, it's been incredible to have the market there as a new Cleveland resident. This place is incredible. I'm wondering if any of the other cities have developed really impactful models. Um, for food waste from the markets related to food insecurity, especially in the pockets of poverty uh, nearby the markets. In terms of uh, alternative dis deliveries, yeah, we, we started in 2009 with a, what we call the Eastern Market Farm Stands, which pop up uh, on pandemic like times about 30 places around the city during the season. We hire 25 uh, fresh food fellows that are ambassadors for good food. We organized a citywide network of neighborhood farmers markets. Um, and all during the pandemic, that kind of went away, replaced by us taking food boxes to people. We were fortunate enough to earn a USDA contract to uh, deliver 2,000 food boxes a week in the families to farm, Farmers to Families Food Box program that actually helped us survive financially the pandemic as well. So we're always looking uh, more recently um, our local public utility that is egg all over its face from several recent snowstorms where, again, the power went out. They're contracting with us to deliver a food box to people whose power has gone out and uh, torched whatever was in their refrigerator. Um, but one thing I'm very excited about is, and this is where food access and food entrepreneurship often overlap, uh, $3.5 million USDA grant through the Michigan Department of Education to distribute food boxes to needy students. Hmm. As we did with the USA program, we know how to do that. We'd call our wholesale farmers, we'd fill the order, deliver the boxes. But this gave us a chance, because we knew it was coming, to work with our urban growers to figure out, if you want to double your production from half an acre to an acre, from an acre to two acres, we can guarantee you a price and a quantity today for delivery this crop season. So that's. Our, mo our model this year is doing that on the front end, and then if for whatever reason they can't meet that supply, then we go to our backstop, which is our wholesale growers. So it's a way for us to, again, strengthen the food sovereignty of Detroit. And also to your point, um, the, the, the process of retailing ugly produce, mm -hmm. that they call it, 
is is still a, is still a work in in development, uh, just because our re not because of the customers, but because of our retailers. They're not quite on board yet, but they figured out. One of the things we've done, though, to backstop all of that is just to make sure that we have um, adequate and robust recycling. So that's, or redistribution. We had an oyster reclamation thing going on um, that we started probably, wow, it's double-digit years ago now. And that's helping the Chesapeake Bay, and so there's this whole symbiotic relationship between us and them. That's working. Um, we also are doing... We're separating um, just trash, trash from food waste, and, and the food waste is being handled corporately by companies that deal with that. So it's, it, it's a work in progress. We're getting there, but we also know that it's not as simple as we really had hoped that it would be. Um, I can add a couple of things. So for us, um, the first thing is partnerships. So there's a great organization in Cincinnati called La Soup, um, and we coordinate with them for all of the um, food waste, um, whether it's produce, meats, or whatever, um, and they're fantastic. They pick up from Finley Market and Finley Kitchen, um, and they use that to make meals um, for Cincinnati Public Schools um, and local food banks. Um, we also have a soup kitchen right across the street from the market that we work pretty closely with. Um, but the second thing I'll mention is that we launched a Finley Market shopping app. Um, so we, the, the first launch was 2020 and it was awful. We were nowhere close to launching. It looked like my eight-year-old made it. Um, we were like in beta phase and then pandemic hit and we're like, we, we have to just go. Um, and it was really the lifeline for a lot of our food entrepreneurs, our merchants, um, but also our shoppers. So we like cobbled together for a couple years and then um, early last year we took a pause, revisited the system and launched a, a brand new app um, and so that you can get almost anything um, from the market on the app. But to um, this question specifically, um, we work pretty closely with, again, Cincinnati Public School Systems, and then um, similar to what um, Dan said before, the PRX um, boxes is what we call them in Cincinnati. Yeah. Um, there's prescription boxes. Um, so we work with TriHealth and Mercy Health, um, and we are a place that we accept those prescriptions. We work with our vendors to box up those produce boxes, and then we deliver them because we have a whole operations around delivery to the schools, um, to the hospitals, to individual houses. And our radius is silly. It's like 50 miles around the market. So we're traveling pretty far with a team of like four people on this app. Um, and then we are also working with local foundations to eliminate any sort of delivery fees for those that are SNAP eligible. And you can also use your SNAP card um, on the app. One thing, if I could just add one thing, and that's with regard to food waste, it happens throughout the whole food chain. Yeah. And so our farmers, um, and to improve their performance, we brought to Eastern Market a small batch freezing operation. And we did that initially to support better school food, because they don't have cooks left in schools, but they can take a two-pound bag of frozen vegetables and put it in and get it ready for students to consume. That bit of business took off in the consumer market once the pandemic set in and schools were shut down. Mm -hmm. So now we have a, a way to get four million pounds last year mm -hmm. out of the fields and into farmers' pockets, not just wasted mm -hmm. and rotting in the field. Brilliant concept. That's great. Our next question comes from Twitter. The markets did not speak much about the way they prioritize or view the role of tourism. 
Finley seems like a visitor destination, but the other markets seem focused on getting food to locals. I'm curious to hear about the balance they strike. So I'll go on this one. Lexington is actually considered, since it's the largest of the six markets in Baltimore, that is actually considered more of the um, hub slash tourist attraction. The rest are neighborhood markets. It's not like the people in the neighborhoods are saying, stay out, we don't want you. But they're in places that are a little more remote. Um, there might be one or two others where tourists do come because they're closer to the, the downtown core and the inner harbor. So there's a little bleed over to that. But for the most part, um, the balance is, is kind of organic. Uh, if it's, it's, the neighborhoods are kind of, you'll know if you belong. And then Lexington is big enough to offer a, a variety of things that, that a number of people are going to want to have, as well as being proximate to um, a theater district um, in walking distance of the two stadii. Right. And, um, <laughs> and uh, something else that was downtown. But anyway, all of that. Um, so for Finley, we definitely see a difference in our shoppers weekday versus weekend. So we're open Tuesday through Sunday. Um, and on Saturdays and Sundays, in addition to having our 60 full-time merchants open, we also have a, an outdoor market where we have probably about 50 pop-up tents and then the region's largest farmer's market. Um, and so you'll see uh, on the weekends, a lot of people still grocery shopping, especially early morning. They want to get to their farmer. They want to get the, the fresh bread. Um, so there's a, a good amount of shoppers Saturdays and Sundays and actually by hour Sunday is the best um, day uh, for all of our merchants. So it's the number one shopping day for actual groceries at Finley Market. We're open 10 to 4, so um, a little bit less than the other days of the week. Um, from an activation perspective though, we, similar, you know, we have organic um, shopper behavior. So we are on the streetcar line that is connected to the Red Stadium and the Bengal Stadium, um, just up from a lot of activities and attractions in Cincinnati. So what we do is we activate um, for those uh, visitors, more of tourists, um, later in the day. So the market closes at 6 on Saturdays. When we do um, music and special events, they start later in the day so that we do not interrupt market shoppers, market traffic. We definitely have heard from merchants over the years. We used to do special events just to introduce people. You've never been, you've lived in Cincinnati your whole life, come and we're going to have a big celebration. And we don't do those anymore um, because it does interrupt um, market shopping. Tuesday through Friday, though, is mostly still just grocery shoppers. Yeah, it's, it's a balance. Um, you know, we, we get quite a few tourists in the warm months, and there's nothing worse than walking at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You'd be exhausted. The place has been absolutely slammed, and vendors didn't have a good day because it was too many people looking and not enough people buying. Yeah. So you got to manage that. You, you know, parking is part of that solution, I think. You know, how do you keep your parking for customers, not for long-term visitors? Um, the, you know, the pandemic solved that problem. You know, we had, we turned parking five times. We had people come, buy their stuff, and yep. leave, and uh, everybody was selling stuff. Mm -hmm. It's kind of nice to have the tourists back again. <laughs> Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Marilyn Burns. Uh, I've been involved with the food system with Case for a very long time, still involved with a very good advocate for it. But I was wondering, and also, sir, the gentleman on the end, <clears throat> you said something then 
really bothered me in referring to them as food deserts, we here referred, we changed that name to food apartheid mm. because there's so much more that's involved in just the food. So my question to you is that the problem that we have here and everything that you do, we basically do here for our residents here. But my thing is how do we try and alleviate more and more residents that aren't able to make it to our local food markets that are being missed? They fall into the cracks and they just seem to get lost. Also, my other part to the question is, how do we get residents in neighborhoods that when they get these, go to these markets or get these boxes of food, it is not what they want. So we need to connect more, and what do you do to connect more with residents who are not getting what they want and how to prepare certain things? You guys can take that. Um, so for us, part of it is partnerships, again, so specifically with the, the shopping app now, but before we were just doing it in partnership with Meals on Wheels. Um, that was a, a great partnership for mostly the senior population in Cincinnati. Um, to your question about um, the types of foods that are being delivered, that was a hard lesson I think we learned um, when we did what was called a farm stand program. We were going outside of um, our neighborhood and, and bringing local produce and, and products. Um, and we realized pretty quickly people couldn't identify what they were, didn't know what to do with it, and so it was going to waste. So um, when we are putting together those boxes of items, it is based on feedback from families, so it's not one size fits all. It's also food that is identifiable. Um, and then also when it's a meal, it is three steps maximum. Um, so it's that food education, um, that is difficult because you're not actually talking to the person, um, but recognizing that if you're putting a butternut squash in a, a box for you know kids, I've got three kids. No one wants a butternut squash. <laughs> no, like, it's making sure it's recognizable and they understand you know something they want. Well, on behalf of the American Squash Association, <laughs> um, I would just add uh, a couple of things. One is um, the online tool does give us, uh, and we have a new platform that's debuting right about now, does give us a better chance to diversify the box. But having said that, so many of the people you're talking about don't have access to the internet. So that's where we really rely on those fresh food fellows being trained enough to be sponges of information from the consumers back to us about what people want. And then lastly, I would add another major problem is that so many households, uh, particularly low-income households, don't have the equipment or the knowledge on how to take fruit and, and, and cook it. And so the thing that I, the third leg of good food access programming is cost, availability, and education, and cooking demonstrations, nutrition education. And it's the part we've never been able to fund as much as I would like. And Ms. Burns, this is why your cooking classes are so important. So important. I used to have a phrase I used in my, my stump speech about people not knowing which end of an eggplant to hold. And I had a kid in the front row at an honors college raise his hand and said, which end of an eggplant do you hold? <laughs> I got the joke. I, I took that line out of my speech. Yes. Hi, good afternoon. Michael Brosco here. Thanks so much for being out here today in Cleveland with us. Um, I've been to all three of your markets respectively, and all three of you are remarkable. One of the best shawarmas I've ever had outside of Amman, Jordan, in Detroit, and Fadley's in, in Lexington, you can't beat it. 
And I don't know of any place better to sit and have a beer and watch the world go by than Finley, my absolute favorite in North America. So thank you, guys. With that said, when you look at your organizations, you look at the things you want to accomplish, serving the community in so many different facets. When you look at the economic side of the equation of making sure that the organization is financially healthy, what are the silver bullets in your mind or what are the ideal ways to do that when you look at the best practices out there? So for example, North Market, you know, the economic development they're doing on that adjacent site is unbelievable. The consulting services they provide. When you look at the seasonal dynamics of Nashville and Dallas having a garden center there and bringing people in in every season and having that kind of lead, that, that, that niche area of, of seasonality to the market experience. What is it about making the market healthy economically that ideally you would like to hone in on yours, your market specifically, and as we juncture in with the west side market, how do we, how do, we do that, especially when you look at the swath of land that we have there and just you know, having it as, as a remarkable asset as you respectively do in your cities? Well, that's a fair question. We've asked it a lot. How do we get more money? <laughs> comes, in, in our case, it comes down to collaborations. Um, we have to make the right partnerships. Um, and that's something we struggled with uh, for a while in the older buildings. Um, but we have to make sure that we have the right partnerships, that we set our lease rates in a place that are accessible and yet um, cover some part of the cost somewhere. And then we have to have an aggressive, since we're a nonprofit, we have to have an aggressive um, development team that does that. The, now, to, to your point, there are lots of things that we need to be doing. Balancing those with who's available to do them okay. is, is always fun. Um, because <laughs> it, it is, I, I go places, I travel, and I spy on other markets, which is the bane of my wife's vacation existence. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I get all these ideas, and I come back, and I say, hey, we ought to be doing, well, so that gets shut down fairly quickly because the staff is the staff. And we do need to be doing those things, but figuring out how to do those things and balance that with the economics of having somebody to do those things and arrange those things is its own balancing act. It's not impossible. None of it's impossible. We just need to figure out how to get it all done. And so offering a slate of things, not just activities and entertainment that brings people to the market, but things that are educational, things that I saw in... Um, Grand Rapids public markets, which, has, which have um, academic collaborations and bring people to actual cooking kitchens where they learn stuff with, and, and this is for kids even. These hydraulic stoves or hydraulic countertops that go up or go down if you're, if you're a kid or if you're an adult. Those kinds of collaborations are necessary and they get money. Because if you're a nonprofit, you can say, we're doing this, we're doing food education. and. Because we're, doing, because we're doing nutrition education, because we're doing service, because we're trying to figure out how to make sure that people understand what arugula really is and, and do something appropriate with it, those kinds of things get the attention of those, those funders who are aware of what the food space um, involves and, and what's all taking place there. So it's a variety of offerings, a variety of initiatives, figuring out who's going to do what, and finding the right, the right sources for funding um, and whatever else I mentioned. Oh, that's great. That's, uh, yeah, um, all of that seems 
true at our market as well. Um, one of the things is certainly uh, finding earned revenue streams um, that will always be coming in. So the not sexy parts of public markets, but we were walking through the market before and you know you're a market geek when you're like, let's see the trash. Yeah. How are you dealing with storage? Like that sort of stuff are earned revenue streams. So um, whether it's um, parking for us is huge, it's the ATM fees, the beer that you enjoyed in the beer garden is a program of ours. It's a fundraising initiative. Um, we own a liquor license, the Corporation for Finley Market does, and it brings in hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And we put those back into our programs. And so when you're, you know, um, that, that's huge. Um, another piece of it, though, I think, um, kind of getting back to the basics, as a nonprofit, it's really easy to do mission creep, right? Like, especially when you're in this world where you're, like, you know enough about food education, you know enough about farming, and you know, like everyone wants to, to partner, I think, with public markets. Um, and so for us, it's sticking to our strategic plan and we have to be safe, clean, beautiful. If our staff is not doing those three things, then we are failing in, in many ways. Um, so those are kind of the, the biggest things I would say yeah. um, financially. Oh, one, one piece of advice also. We, as a nonprofit, struggle with communicating the story of the nonprofit and that we are a nonprofit. So when you talk to donors, it's so different if you're talking to a foundation versus a shopper. You go to a shopper and you say, hey, would you like to support the Corporation for Finley Market? And we do these things. And we do, we shop every Saturday morning. We <laughs> do support Finley Market. And that has been super huge um, difficulty for our development team. So, you know, kind of having those stories, depending on who you're talking to, is going to be key. In part, we, need, we changed our name from Eastern Market Corporation to Eastern Market Corporation doing business as Eastern Market Partnership because it sounded a little more mm -hmm. nonprofit. Yeah. Uh, but I would argue that having a diversity of income streams, we get about 40% of our revenue from earned revenues. Mm -hmm. And then uh, non-earned revenues are a healthy mix between um, f large philanthropy, uh, corporate, and state and federal funding. And my, I'm in the worst cash flow situation I've been in since I've been here. Because last year we went out to raise a couple of million dollars of state and federal funding. We got $15 million that so far haven't been able to actually get any of that yet. So I'm sure the mayor can. Uh, <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I'm just saying that I think you need to develop those skill sets in yeah. each of those silos, but having not so. The problem I'm having is right now one of those silos is too big. Yeah. Uh, hello, my name is Sam Vertosnik. I go to I'm an eighth grader at the Welsh Academy. I'm here with my class today, and uh, Welsh Academy is like right around the street from uh, the West Side Market. So we uh, we have gone on a couple field trips there, spent some time there, and um, I was wondering like you guys um, mentioned a lot like this is for all the panelists that um that you like try and grow smaller entrepreneurships that like they want to go to the next level or they want to be there. So like how do you make space or like areas for them to like now move in when there's already enough like shops there? That's a great question. Yeah. So for us, um, you know, we, we are in a place physically where there are still storefronts available. Um, so again, working with those local developers to make sure that the rent is lower. Um, also working with some developers and saying, you know, you should apply for new market tax credits and work with us as a nonprofit, um, and then maybe rent us the space for like a dollar a year, um, for example. 
or, you know, we're, we're pitching to local developers to be a part of the growth of the market district. Um, so that's one piece of it. And the other piece of it from to, to support food entrepreneurs in the whole Cincinnati region is recognizing that sometimes Finley Market isn't the best location for that final, final place. So they might start out at the market, they might start out in front of um, you know, the weekend traffic as a pop-up vendor, but really where they should be is um, in their neighborhood community, where their family lives, where their friends live. And so being open to um, other parts of town and having relationships with um, those sorts of groups to, you know, when there's a storefront available or an opportunity somewhere else to, for us to be the first call. Um, so whatever is best for the entrepreneur is um, the best really, um, so that they can be successful long-term. There really has to be an infrastructure of entrepreneurial support. Mm -hmm. And so it's not all the market, the wraparound services and the training and the startup and the continuation and the sustainability are part of other people's uh, purview so that we don't have mission creep. The idea though, and it's happening in Baltimore now, is that we have this thing called Boost, among others, which is uh, black-owned and operated storefronts. If, in fact, a, a, an entrepreneur in the market, and we've graduated several, gets to the point where they scale beyond what the market's capacity is, it's time for them to, to go to their own brick and mortar or mm -hmm. to another space or open up other satellite spaces. We're not, we're not scared of that, and we're not um, telling them not to do that. In fact, we're encouraging people to do as much as they possibly can do, but we'll always be your base. You can always come home. It's that kind of a thing. Yeah. You know, we offer transient space, so that gives us the ability to play at the very bottom level. And, and so, but I think good points were raised about it. it's an ecosystem, and we do our share. We, we have a screening class once a month for people who want to maybe think they have a food product. And all the intention of that class is just to make sure people know what they need to have to get serious about it. 40 people a month, and maybe 39 of them haven't realized all the work they need to do. So it's a great tool. But then our wraparound services start and we provide production space to start with, acceleration space to grow their business, and all the while partnering with other people to help with all the other aspects of business development. Thank you to Dan, Kelly, Robert, and to Mayor Bibb for joining us here today at the City Club of Cleveland. We would also like to welcome guests at tables hosted by the Famicos Foundation, Huntington Bank, Ohio City Incorporated, PNC Bank, the Welsh Academy at Saint, and, and the Welsh Academy at St. Ignatius High School. Thank you all so much for being here with us today. Up next, up next at the City Club, tomorrow, March 16th, we will welcome back Chris Kuhar, Executive Director of the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo. He will be in conversation with IdeaStream Public Media's Gabrielle Kramer about the role of zoos in conservation, science, and education in a changing world. Then we are off this Friday, March 17th, as thousands of Clevelanders will make their way downtown <laughs> to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. That? And that brings Saint us Patrick's to the end of today's Patrick. forum. Thank you once again to our panelists and to Mayor Bibb, and thank you members, guests, and friends of the City Club. I'm Kristen Beard-Adams, and this forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org.
production and distribution of City Club Forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.